Progress versus Parasites by Douglas Carswell. Chapter 15. The Fragility of Progress. Human progress is neither linear nor irreversible. History has seen some spectacular regressions. Back in the 5th century BC, Athens lost the Peloponnesian War to Sparta. A sophisticated, advanced city-state that encouraged trade, innovation and ideas was overwhelmed by a state noted for its military discipline and savagery. The rule of 30 tyrants, a pro-Sparta oligarchy, was imposed on a free republic. Four centuries after the end of the Roman Republic, the western part of the Roman Empire fell. The population and living standards around much of the Mediterranean and across most of Europe plummeted. Advanced technology gave way to the more rudimentary. Towns were abandoned. Levels of literacy reverted to what they had been centuries before. On other occasions, decline was less dramatic, a case of relative rather than absolute decline. During the Middle Ages, advances under the Abbasid in Iraq or the Song in China simply petered out. Venice, which once shone brightly, ceased to be quite so exceptional, becoming just another city-statelet. She was certainly nothing exceptional by the time Napoleon ordered her to surrender. There have been Spartas and tyrants, dictators and barbarians in modern times too. Stefan Zwieg was born into a wealthy middle-class family in Vienna in 1881. His father had made money in textiles and they were typical of the kind of prosperous bourgeois family that the Industrial Revolution had created during the second half of the 19th century. Zweig graduated in 1904 from the University of Vienna, a distinguished seat of Western rational thought, before embarking on a career as a writer. During the 1920s and 1930s, he became one of the most popular writers in the world. Everything about that world for the first few decades of Zweig's life suggested progress and permanence. It was, he later wrote, a golden age of security. Vienna, his home, had been an international metropolis for 2,000 years. But the world for Zweig, and for millions of others whose lives had been enhanced in almost every conceivable way over the previous few generations, fell apart. Jewish. Zweig was forced to steal away from Vienna like a thief in the night. His books, once beloved by millions, were burnt. He found exile in England and the New World. But millions of Jews who did not flee were murdered in the years that followed. Millions perished. In 1942, Zweig killed himself in despair. Europe where the miracle of modernity had begun, had become a continent of savagery. Zweig's The World of Yesterday, the manuscript which he sent to his publisher the day before he took his own life, is a lament for the past, and a timeless reminder to us that there's nothing inevitable about improvements in the human condition. Zweig's story is proof that productive civilization is more fragile than we sometimes care to understand. And there were millions of individuals like Zweig whose tragic stories have simply never been told. Germany, and indeed Japan, 
might well have modernised in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Their output per person might have soared dramatically with remarkable increases in productivity. But in the early 1940s, that would hardly have seemed an unequivocal win for human progress. Nazi Germany's wars of conquest from 1938 onwards imposed parasitism across almost an entire continent. German administrations were forced on occupied territories. Eastern Europe and France were run as a massive estate, producing for the greater good of the fatherland. As the war progressed, parasitism became mass dehumanisation. Millions of workers were enslaved. The most extraordinary atrocities were committed. Millions of Jews, gypsies and others were murdered on an industrial scale. As Japan industrialised in the first three decades of the 20th century, economic power was increasingly concentrated in the hands of the zaibatsu, meaning literally the wealth clique. These were family-controlled industrial conglomerates with monopolies and banking subsidiaries attached. Rather like many of the big businesses in 1930s Germany, the zaibatsu entered into agreements with government. They predominated in mining, chemicals, metals and the merchant fleet, and they supplied the army with the weapons to wage war. Under the Meiji settlement, the Japanese army was only accountable to the emperor, not the civilian government. Indeed, during the 1920s, civilian administrations came to depend on the backing of an increasingly nationalistic officer corps that ran the army. By the 1930s, the army was in effect in political control. In October 1941, Tojo, a Japanese general, took over as Prime Minister. Less than two months later, he gave the order to launch the unprovoked assault on Pearl Harbor. Japan, like Germany, imposed a command economy over the territories that it conquered. The neighbourhood was annexed and millions killed. Like Spartan slaves, the helots, survivors were set to work for the greater good of the conquerors. When wandering tribes from outside the empire settled inside Roman provinces, the old way of life disappeared. Much of Europe reverted to a subsistence existence. That wasn't what happened when the 20th century barbarians took over. However horrific totalitarian regimes managed, for a time at least, to increase economic output compared to what went before. They've managed certain kinds of innovation, albeit ones associated with waging war and killing people. Doesn't this, however, present a problem for us if we define progress simply in terms of output per person? Of course, there is much more to a civilised society than economic indices. As we noted in an earlier chapter, civilised standards, attitudes and other intangibles are enormously important too. It's not possible to talk about human progress without taking into account a broad range of what one might call humanitarian considerations. But we should not let totalitarian regimes off the hook by focusing on all that if it means conceding any economic ground to them at all. Totalitarian regimes that use command and control policies are not much good at increasing per capita output in the longer run either. Like those that ruled over the giant latifundi farms in Imperial Rome, or the Jagir estates in Mughal India, 
They could increase output by the use of force, but it's unlikely to be sustainable over the long term. To be sure, we don't know how the economies of the Third Reich or Tojo's Japan might have performed had either regime managed to somehow survive the 1940s and existed in peace in the 1950s and beyond. Both disappeared in the rubble of shattered cities. But we do know what happened to that other totalitarian regime, the Soviet Union, and it's clear that its command and control economy initially produced some substantial increases in output, followed by economic stagnation and failure. Many of the increases in output in the Soviet system happened as a consequence of a shift from agricultural to industrial production. There may well have been similar windfall gains when the Soviets switched from a war economy, which concentrated on the production of armaments, to one which produced more household goods. What is clear, though, is that by the 1960s, the Soviet economy had started to slow dramatically and further increases in output per person proved elusive. Collectivised agriculture was never as productive as official statistics seemed to show. Perhaps because economic output within the Soviet system was seen as an end in itself, rather than as a response to meet actual demand, the allocation of resources remained horribly inefficient. One feature of the Soviet system, evident to some outside observers in the 1970s, was that workers within it were consistently less productive and had lower standards of living than those elsewhere. Across much of Central Europe, the Soviets had to erect walls to prevent workers voting with their feet and moving to the capitalist West. To achieve increased output, the Soviet state had to reduce much of its workforce to the status of Soviet helot. Individuals had little choice as to where they worked, what occupation they had, or what terms and conditions they received in return for their efforts. Eventually, the failure of the workers' paradise to deliver for its own workers became so evident that it collapsed. At the end of the Cold War, Francis Fukuyama wrote The End of History, an anthem to optimism. With the end of the Soviet system, Fukuyama suggested, the world was moving inexorably towards greater liberal democracy. We might each get there by different routes, at different times, but the end destination, he argued, was going to be the same for the whole of humanity. But is this really the case? Does history unfold as a progression rather than as a set of random events? Look for too long at Madison's data about global output per person, and it's possible to get the idea that we're on an unstoppable path of progress. But maybe progress only feels inevitable because we happen to be living through good times. If you lived in Rome in the 2nd century, or Zwig's Vienna in the late 19th, you might have begun to see progress as permanent too. Maybe times are only good when the right side wins the wars, when the Athenses rather than the Spartas are ascendant. England, America, Germany, Japan and Russia all industrialise. Perhaps the world today is only as benign as it is because the Anglo-American side, not Nazi Germany or Tojo's Japan, won the Second World War and then prevailed against the communists during the Cold War. In 1941, or indeed 1961, there didn't seem to be much inevitable about those outcomes. 
The world order that exists in Fukuyama's end of history is essentially American-made, underpinned by US military might. Could it be the world that we live in today is a product not of any inevitable historic processes, but of a Dutch Anglo-American success story spread over the past three or four centuries, which has gone global? The laissez-faire anti-absolutist side won the world's first global war, the Seven Years' War, between 1756 and 1763. Lincoln's Union prevailed over the Confederacy. Between 1914 and 1918, English, French and eventually American troops wore down the Kaiser's forces. Between 1939 and 45, the Allies defeated the Axis. But just imagine if the other side had won any of those conflicts. Is it really ideas that enable us to be free? Or merely the right kind of might? Thank you for listening to this episode of Progress versus Parasites. I'm Douglas Carswell, and I very much enjoyed talking to you about the subject of my book. If you're interested in hearing more from this series, please do listen to some of the other episodes available on my podcast.